Let's begin with prayer. Father God, I thank you for your amazing grace. I thank you for the love that you've given us, for the joy of the Lord, for the privilege of knowing you. And I pray, Lord, that you would guide and direct us as we look into your word. For you are good. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in the book of Ecclesiastes, King Solomon examines the nature of life, work, happiness, and death. He looks at all that we do and he realizes the futility of life. He writes this, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and then turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its feeling of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which we can say, look, this is something new? It was here already, long ago. It was here before time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. And on and on it goes. There's a secular song sung by a lady named Carolyn Rose called More of the Same. And the first verse that she sings reads this way. Floating around in a vacuum of space, everything here, it all looks the the same, like aisles and aisles of boxes and cans. Everything is just more of the same thing. More of the same. Isn't that what Solomon wrote about in Ecclesiastes? More of the same. In the routine of life, Futility sets in, but no one wants to notice. They just keep going. Even Miss Rose in her song sings, I'm never going to figure it out. No, I'm never going to try again if all it is is just more of the same thing. Even she succumbs to the saying, I don't see it. I choose not to see it. Why futility? We are a futile life. It looks like you, you think of the world and it just seems futile. Well, there's an interesting verse in Romans, Romans chapter 8, it says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, and hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Futility comes from the slavery and corruption of sin. The culture of our world is trapped in a cycle of chaos and futility which it cannot free itself. It continues down the same tired path without hope and help. We see this cycle when Jesus gave his Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. He says this, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah, and many will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of the birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you'll be hated by all nations because of me. And at that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. You look at that and you see that cycle in which we're trapped in. 
that same tired cycle. Many, you'll, you'll see this pattern of deception, war, rumors of war, conflict, conflict among nations, conflict among people, families. There'll be famines and earthquakes and hurricanes and then persecution. And it starts all over, over and over again. Every generation sees more of the same. More of the same violence, more of the same hate, more of the same immorality. All we see is the saga of human history stuck in this quagmire, this quicksand of sin and shame, struggling to free itself, but only going deeper and deeper. But there is hope. There is hope because there's the God who loves you. He loves you. In Matthew 24, we read those wonderful words in verse 14. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. The gospel is our hope. Christ, having come to this earth, having died on the cross, taken our sins, having forgiven us of our sins, having crushed our sins, and then placed in that grave, and then on the third day he rose triumphantly, because you know why? He is Lord. That is our hope. The gospel's our hope. The gospel rescues us from, from futility and sin. The gospel grabs us from the quicksand and frees us. There's always one more move in Christ. In God is hope and in God is love and God is Christ. There's a future in God. There's no future in the futility of sin and immorality. There's a future in Christ. I want you to know today I want you to celebrate today. Your future is secure in Christ. Our future is secure from sin, futility, and shame. It's secure from the lies of the enemy, and it's secure because our Lord has risen from the dead, and He saved us from our sins. He's forgiven us. Put your faith in Him. Surrender to Him. Love Him. He loves you. You know, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament in our Bibles. In the Hebrew Bible, the last two book is the second is Second Chronicles. The Hebrew Bible has the same uh, books that we do, but in different order. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament in our Bibles because it's part of what is called the twelve minor prophets. I guess they were all under eighteen, huh? No, I'm just kidding. They not twelve minor prophets. It's the last book written in our Bibles, uh, in the history of, of books being written. In our Bibles, we have 66 books, 39 books in the Old and 27 in the New. The Old Testament takes us all the way to 430 B.C. And then Matthew begins 430 years later with the birth narrative of Christ. During those 430 years between the Testaments is what is uh, called the silent years, if you will. Uh, it's an interesting history of how Judea, the people of God, uh, became an independent and free nation. They were actually free for 80 years. They had no uh, other nation controlling or speaking into them or forcing them to do things. They were free. Free for 80 years, and then Pompey, the Roman general, came in, and he basically took control of that region. But there was another time there. There was 400 years of silence between Joseph and Moses from Genesis, Texas. Well, Malachi, he probably lived between maybe the years of 480 to 400 B.C. That's the 5th century. A hundred years before Malachi, 
Uh, Jerusalem had shrunk in size and territory. Judah was steeped in idolatry. Judah refused to listen to the, to the prophets that God had, um, had sent. God promised salvation, but it fell on deaf ears. The lure of the false gods were too great, and so Judah sank deep into the quicksand of idolatry, and for that they lost their land and their freedom. The, the Babylonian Empire, a very powerful and strong kingdom, came in and destroyed the city of Jerusalem. Uh, the, uh, the, they killed thousands, exiled others, and left those who could stay in the city desolate. The temple was burned. The leaders killed or beaten. In Isaiah, it was prophesied this, this day would come. It says in Isaiah 5, Their banquets are accompanied by lyre and harp, by tambourine and flute, and by wine, but they do not pay attention to the deeds of the Lord, nor do they consider the work of his hands. Therefore, my people go into exile for their lack of knowledge. They didn't think of God. They didn't pay attention to God. And earlier in Isaiah, in um, chapter 1, uh, the prophet said, An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its ma- master's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. They don't know me. And so they go into exile. More of the same. More ignorance of God. More dismissing of God. More neglecting and rejecting of God. God's people throughout the Old Testament are consistently forgetting, neglecting, and, and forsaking His Word and God Himself. His people were indifferent to God. But God loves His people. And He kept after them. And He kept after them. He kept coming after them because He loves His people. He sent prophet after prophet. He kept reaching out to them. Their future was not secure because they neglected the One who loves them. Our future is secure in God and Christ, for Christ is risen from the dead. Put your faith in God. Trust Him. Call on Him. Do not neglect Him. Do not forsake Him. Do not forget Him, because your future is truly secure in Christ. Number one, stay in the Word. Let's look at Malachi chapter 1, start with verse 1. The oracle of the Word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, How have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob. But I have hated Esau and have made his mountains a desolation, appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. John Ashcroft, former U.S. Attorney General, tells this story of growing up. He says, many kids wake up to the smell of coffee brewing or the sound of a rooster crowing. My wake-up call was my father's passionate praying filtering through the house. Sometimes I'd ease downstairs and join him. One knee was usually raised, so I'd slip underneath, shielded by his body as he pleaded for my soul. I never caught Dad praying for our happiness. He realized that the pursuit of happiness for its own sake is frustrating, disillusioning, often futile effort. Happiness usually hides from those addicted to its sugar while it chases after those caught up in something more lasting than momentary excitement. I never heard him pray for a bigger house, a car, or bank account. Instead, he prayed that our hearts would be ignited and inspired to do the things of eternal consequence. Turn our eyes from the temporal, the physical, and the menial, he prayed, and toward the eternal, the spiritual, and the noble. My father never pressured us toward achievement. He knew that the push had come from... It had to come from inner reserves, not outward designs. He simply dangled before us the possibilities. Thanks to his example, we sometimes took the bait. <laughs> End quote. Christ said in Matthew, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? 
It is a futile effort to pursue the passion and compulsions of the culture, but rather to pursue, let us, let us pursue the will of God. Malachi means, literally that word Malachi means my messenger. Not sure what his real name was. Maybe that was his real name. I don't know. Could be a title, my messenger. Well, Malachi lived in Jerusalem when Nehemiah was the governor of Judah. Nehemiah does not mention a prophet in his, his book. Nehemiah, when he lived in Persia, Persia, in the capital of Susa, he was the cupbearer of the king. Now, to be the cupbearer was quite the honor. You know, you poured the wine to make sure that his cup was full, always full of wine, and it had to be good wine. You know, it couldn't be that cheap stuff. You know, and I'm sure it was a pretty dangerous job, too, because what if the king did not like the wine, you know? <laughs> you wouldn't blame anybody but you. <laughs> and so Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king. The king of Persia was incredibly powerful and very wealthy. He controlled the entire middle and central east of southern Asia. His kingdom went from the border of India to the tip of Greece. Nehemiah asked one day, he was praying to God, and he went to the king of Persia, and he asked him if he could go back to Jerusalem, or go to Jerusalem, and rebuild the wall. The king gave him permission, and so Nehemiah travels to Jerusalem, and he stays there for 12 years. Well, Nehemiah 13 says, but during all this time I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, had gone to the king. After some time, however, I asked leave from the king. And so after 12 years, Nehemiah leaves and goes back to Persia. And he was gone for maybe a, a year or two uh, from Jerusalem. And it could have been during those two years that he was gone that Malachi prophesied to the people. And a lot of the problems that Nehemiah deals with when he comes back are some of the, are some of the problems that we read about here in Malachi. Well, we know that Malachi is the last voice of God before the Old Testament goes silent. And what we find is how things are more of the same. A hundred years before Malachi, Israel was steeped in idolatry, and here comes the Babylonians, and they, they took them out of the land, they kicked them out, because God says, you don't know me. You don't know me. More of the same attitude, more of the same lifestyle, more of the same life that you lived before the exile. There was no change in how they lived prior to the exile over a hundred years prior. It's more of the same. And when you live more of the same, there's no future for you. There's no future for you, but there's future for you in Christ because Christ is risen from the dead. So number one, God does love you. The first words of this book by the prophet are God speaking, saying, I have loved you. In Jeremiah it says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. It has been evident. God's love has been evident. For some reason, the people doubted God's love. Look at verse 1. It says, but you say, how have you loved us? Where's the proof, God? They doubted him, and so they asked, how have you loved us? Maybe you've asked that. How have you loved us, God? I don't see it. The people living in Jerusalem had been there for about 100 years since their exile and their return. And in that time, the temple was rebuilt. The wall was rebuilt. Uh, Solomon's, uh, Solomon's temple was, you know, it was a, it was a nice-sized temple. When they rebuilt the temple, it was like, eh, it was all right. <laughs> they were always rebuilt. Their enemies were subdued. They lived in relative peace. They didn't really, uh, they could practice their religion. They could do the things they were without threat. Uh, they did have to pay taxes to the empire, uh, making sure they kept in good standing with them. But overall, they were free to exercise their faith 
without hindrance or threat. And the people became lazy. They lost sight of God. They began to live their lives apart from God, forgetting his word, forgetting his law, forgetting why they were sent into exile. And when it came to their faith and practice, they did the very minimum. (laughs) Oh, yeah, we have sacrifices. Well, let's use the worst animals we got for our sacrifices because that won't cost us a thing. The priests were not teaching the law. In fact, they were just teaching whatever they thought was right. They neglected the law and taught their own opinions. The men were divorcing their wives without reason or just because. They treated the institution of marriage flippantly and foolishly. The people did not give their tithes consistently, and they lived believing they owned everything instead of believing they were stewards of what God gave them. In Malachi 1, verse 10, look at this. It says, Oh, that there were among you who would shut the gates that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept any offerings from you. Just shut the doors of the temple, because I don't matter to you anyway. There's no future if you live like this. It's just more of the same. Before the exile and the fall of their city, God promised his people many promises. In Ezekiel, we find that he promised that there would be this beautiful temple, and it was a massive size, and, and the land itself covering the temple was like seven miles deep and seven miles wide. Not the temple itself, but the land covering the temple area. And the land divided was a perfect symmetry. And, and it's just an amazing, if you read Daniel, I think, 40, 40 through 48, you see this amazing temple that God uh, describes. In Daniel, God promised this, Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. In Hosea, God promised, I will hear their waywardness and love them freely. For my anger is turned away from them. I will be like the dew to Israel, and he will blossom like a lily. Like a cedar of Lebanon, he will send down his roots. His young shoots will grow. His splendor will be like an olive tree. His fragrance like a cedar of Lebanon. People will dwell again in this shade. They will flourish like the grain. They will blossom like the vine. Israel's fame will be like the wine of Lebanon. Wow, these beautiful pictures, these promises that God gave. And in Isaiah, God promised a mountain where people, where the nations would stream to the mountain. And in Jeremiah, he promised someone from David's line who would arise and he would execute justice and righteousness on the earth. And and these promises, you read throughout the Old Testament prophets, all these promises that God gave, these wonderful words. Well, as the people returned from the land of exile, many stayed behind. But as they returned, they rebuilt the temple. It took 20 years for them to rebuild it. 70 years later, rebuild the wall. They kept people out of the city, even though God says, I want the whole world to come to me. The temple was small, but he's, and it didn't look like the one that Ezekiel had described. And the people were not, they, they weren't cured of their waywardness. The same practices of sin continued on. It was more of the same. And as the people looked at their lives and the state of political politics and economy, they may have thought, where are the promises of God? Where's the temple that Ezekiel described? Where's world dominion that you said would happen? It's like Solomon. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. More of the same. What they were really saying is, where are you, God? Speak to us. You're silent. You know, there are times that we struggle with what we think is the silence of God, and that silence of God we interpret to be the absence of God. God is absence. God is not here. God is not involved. 
God does not care. Where are you, God? I'm struggling. I'm dying. I need you. Maybe you thought of that. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you've fallen before God and you say, God, where are you? I'm dying. I need you. I can't hear you. Do you love me? In Psalm 42, the psalmist cried out, My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, Where's your God? This is what our culture demands of us every day. Where's your God? Sometimes we get caught up in that and say, Where are you, God? God looks at the people and he says, Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I've loved Jacob, but I hated Esau. What kind of answer is this? <laughs> You know, you, you realize that when God speaks, He's spoken to us in His Word, and His Word is always with us. He's always with us. He's always near. He's never far away. Yeah, well, you may stray. You may go a different way, but He's never far away. And His presence is there. And His love is there. Have you forgotten His love? Because it's there. You know, we look at our world, our culture, our history, and we ask, why are the evil not punished and the righteous freed? Why do the evil and the prideful win? In, fa- in fact, if you, look at, if you look at the world, if you want to win in this world, you have to be ruthless, cunning, clever, and filled with pride, you know? It just seems to be that way, you know? But what does it profit a man who gains the whole world but forfeits his own soul? Where are you, God? Number two, God's presence is revealed in his love. You know, God told his people in Jerusalem that he loved them, but Esau he hated. What this means is that Jacob was chosen and Esau was not. God chose Jacob for reasons we do not know. That means uh, from Jacob, God's people were to be born. As the people of Jerusalem looked south, they saw that the nation of Edom, which was the descendants of Esau, was empty and desolate. No Edomite lived in the nation where they used to live. When Jerusalem fell a hundred years before Malachi, the nations of Edom celebrated that. They cheered on on the fact that that Jerusalem fell. In fact, if you read the book of Obadiah, that's what it's all about. Obadiah said, you cheered when my people fell and, and were destroyed. But it wasn't too long when Edom was chased away around uh, and they were found fleeing from their homeland. Then God says to his people, look where you live. You live in a city that I've chosen. There's a temple here. All the people are living in the city, in the territory I promised to Abraham. You are here because of me. You are here because I never abandoned you. I promised you to return, and now here you are. Look at Edom. It is empty, and those that live do not live in the place they once called home. They are now foreigners in a foreign land. God is looking at his people and saying, Edom has no future. Their existence is gone. Their land is inhabited by others. You have a future, and you are living now because of me. My love is evidence for you to live with me. I live with you. With God, your future is secure in Christ. There is no future outside of God. The people did not know how good they had it because they took it for granted. They didn't know their future was secure. Your future is secure. Number two, God's word is God's love revealed to you. Let's take a look at verses four and five. Though Edom says we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts. 
They may build, but I will tear down, and men will call them the wicked territory, and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Your eyes will see this, and you will say, the Lord will be magnified. The Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream one night, if you read the book of Daniel, and he insisted when he had this dream, uh, this king was a, was a powerful king, and, and uh, he would say, I want, he, he would have advisors, you know, he'd have people there, and he would insist upon them to interpret for him, you know, certain things, certain events, tell him the future, what's going to happen if I do such and such. Well, he has this dream, and then he, he calls all of his wise men up, and he says, tell me the meaning of my dream, but first you have to tell me what I dreamed. <laughs> uh, and then they said, well, <clears throat> maybe you could tell us what was the dream, then we can interpret it. No, you tell me the dream and then the interpretation. It says nobody can do that. Well, of course, Daniel, he prays, and, and God gives uh, the, the dream and the interpretation to Daniel. And Nebuchadnezzar dreamt that he saw a statue that was tall, made of gold, silver, bronze, iron, and iron clay. And each of the elements represented different kingdoms throughout history. And when Daniel interpreted the dream, he came to the end, and he says this in Daniel chapter 2. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it, will ne- it itself will endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king that will take place in the future, so the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. The kingdom made of gold is the mightiest, and of course it represented Babylon. The weakest is that represented by the iron and clay. But it didn't matter. It doesn't matter how strong our earthly kingdoms are because they're all for naught. It doesn't matter. They have no future. In this interpretation, Daniel said, God will set up his kingdom and it cannot be destroyed. It will not be handed to another. It will not be given to people. It will crush all earthly and human kingdoms. What do we do in this world is meaningless. It is meaningless because it is apart from God. If it's done in God and God does it, God does it, God moves, God calls it, God moves in within us, that has eternal value. The stone was cut out of the mountain without human hands, meaning that that kingdom was not built by humans. The kingdom of God is now and yet to be. So number one, there is hope in God. Well, God spoke through Malachi saying, Eden will try to rebuild and, uh, again, but God will be against him. In the Bible, we read this, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. There's hope in God. There's a hope in God. You see, in the book of Revelation, you see this play out very well. In chapter 18 of Revelation and chapter 21, you have what's called the tell of two cities. In the chapter 18, you have the city where humanity, humanism is the center, our accomplishments, our great deeds. And then in chapter 21, you have the city of heaven where God is the center. One has a future, the other does not. And I can guarantee you the one with humanity as a center does not. And that's what you see. There's no future for the city where there's humanity as the center, but there's an eternal future where God is. No matter if our world were to last a million years, it cannot last, outlast our God. 
As God speaks to Jerusalem, he notices Edom's determination. Edom, they're going to rebuild. They may rebuild, but it won't last. Today, there's no Edom, but there is an Israel. But I want you to know something in verse 4. It says, They may build, but I will tear down, and men will call them the wicked territory, and people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. God is mad at you. Why is God so mad at Edom? Well, if you look at the history of Eden, you kind of get a clue. Edom was the enemy of Israel, the oldest that yet still lived. Amalek was an Edomite with whom the Lord has sworn the Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. God told King Saul to go and utterly destroy the Amalekites for their persistent and hateful attacks on Israel. Uh, Agag was the king of Amalekites, but he was allowed to live. Where do we find Esther? What do we find in Esther? But Haman wanting to kill all the Jews and annihilate them. And in Esther 3, it says this. Uh, After these events, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. And what did, it, what did the, uh, Haman want to do? He wanted to annihilate all the Jews. And why, did, why was God opposed to Edom? Because of what he promised in, to Abraham. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. When you walk with God, there's a future for you. Your future is secure. My Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads, he guides, he promises, he, he protects. At the end of Psalm 23, what do we find? We read these words, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I have a future in God. When you walk from God, you live apart from him, it's more of the same. The same routine, the same direction, the same spiral down, the same curse, the same anger, the same futility. Out of all the centuries, Jerusalem, you are here prospering while Edom is no more. Do you not see how their future is gone and how your future is here? What is the response supposed to be? And God even gives them the response. The Lord be magnified beyond the borders of Israel. Finally, God is, the, is for the whole world. If we were to grasp the greatness and majesty of God, we would, too, declare the same thing. God, you are for the whole world. God, you are, to, you are too great for just one people, for one nation, for one family. You belong to the whole world. The whole world must know you. The whole world must declare you. The whole world must worship you. You belong to the whole world. It is selfish of us to think that we alone are your people. Everyone must have the chance to know you. Everyone must have a chance to bow before you and repent of their sins. In Malachi, is, this is the first of four phrases of beyond the borders, if you will. Yeah, Malachi 1.11, Malachi 1.14, and Malachi 3.12. All saying, Lord, you are greater than the borders. You are magnified beyond what we can see. You are greater than what we could ever know. You belong to all cultures and all people. May they, too, bow their knee and worship you. God is calling his people to simply love him. And as they love God, the world will take notice and say, we want to love God. It's the same thing you read in Acts 2, when the church simply sought to love and give to another. Thousands came into the church because they saw the love of God. In Malachi, God is telling his people, if you emphasize me, focus me, make me the center, the world will notice. Yes, some will attack, some will hate you, but others will want to know. God's name is worthy to be praised. Give your life to the one whose name is worthy. 
He is worthy because he's worthy to be magnified beyond the borders of Israel. Malachi is setting us up for what we call the Great Commission in Matthew 28, where Christ sends his disciples to all the nations of the world that the name of God would be known. You have two options, more of the same with no future or your future secure built on Christ. Build your life on Christ because your future is secure in Christ. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your love that is eternal and real. And in the dark moments and in the great moments that we face and encounter, we thank you that you're near, that you never leave us nor forsake us, that your word is truth, your word is holy, your word is sound, your word is certain, and we can trust you because you have spoken. In Jesus' name.